Hello and welcome to Subway Mesa podcast. My name is Owen Gomartin. On this week, we are talking housing. Housing has sort of risen to the top of the agenda after three years of being sort of off the off the political radar. And three three weeks out from the the local and regional elections, these these polls are being are being fought around the question of housing. To discuss this question, we have a really interesting guest who's been on before, uh, Carlos Del Close, who is the author of uh, a recent report from the the Future Policy Lab. The, the report is entitled Housing Bueno. Vivienda para vivir from what would we say from commodity to to right, no? Um, That's correct. Yeah, well, Carlos, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's a it's a pleasure to be back. Um, I guess just to kind of complete my my intro, I'm a I'm a researcher at the at RMIT University and okay. the Autonomous University of Barcelona. In addition to being a fellow at the Future Policy Lab. Okay, and you're also the author of "Hope Hope is a Promise" from the Indignados to the Rise of Podemos. No, that was a few years ago. Let's see where we're we're talking. We're talking on yes. we're talking on the fifteenth of May. The is it the twelfth the twelfth twelfth anniversary of twelfth anniversary. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, where where were you on in uh, the fifteenth of May, two thousand eleven? Did you were you there on the first day? Or? Yeah, yeah, great. I was there on the first day. I was at the plaza. Let me tell you something about that. So in Barcelona. The 15 May protest was a huge letdown for me because I okay. was, uh, you know, quite politicized before then. And, you know, it seemed like something really big was happening. And it was. It was like these very large protests that were organized without labor unions or political yeah. parties or anyone um, in like 60 cities across Spain. And it was pretty big in Barcelona. Right. But um, I remember very vividly what happened was like it was just like a much I don't know if you remember that time in Spain, but it was not a festive time. It was very, very dour um, austerity and um, just, you know, uh, it was not a good time. I'll just put it that way. I had myself as an adjunct professor, I had experienced a a 44 percent pay cut on the back of a previous pay cut, which meant over two years, my salary decreased by 60 percent. So I was not in a great mood. And uh, and so the protest was like very like happy in a lot of ways. It was like, yeah, let's do this and very positive and very all this. And um, and so they finished the protest in the Parque de la Ciutadella, you know, shouting at the parliament. And uh, and then someone played body moving by the Beastie Boys uh, from the truck and okay. people just started dancing for a little bit and then they just left. <laughs> and that was the end of the protest. And so I was like, oh, this is a bummer. And it wasn't until really like the police intervened in Sol in Madrid that people responded to the police brutality by taking to the squares. And in Catalonia, we did that. And um, and that was like two or three days later, actually. So it was and I was there for that as well. And it was, you know, kind of um, it was an interesting moment because it was like, where's this going to go exactly? We weren't really quite sure. And then you know, things got got delightfully out of hand. Exactly. Yeah. Um, No, I I wasn't, I wasn't in Spain at that time. I was in, I was, I was in London for the first day of Occupy London, which was, which was interesting. Um, I just remember being kettled for about eight hours, but um, yeah, Yeah. you know, the, the, the Metropolitan Police don't, don't mess around, but it was an interesting day. I remember, yeah, some interesting discussions. Then Julian Assange turned up and sort of hijacked hijacked the whole event. Oh, uh, he gave you know it was meant to be a sort of horizontal 
discussion, etc. He turns up and gave gave a speech from the from the steps of of uh, Saint Saint Paul's, talk, talking only about his own case, not about anything else. Yeah, uh, the celebrity but, left is really good at, at getting into these, you know. So yeah, exactly. For better and for and for worse. Yeah, but obviously, like I mean, this is related to what we're talking about today, which is housing. I mean, obviously, one of the one of the the major, I guess, social movements that came out of the Kinsey MA and the Gnatus wave was was the housing movement. You had the anti eviction platform La Pa, which is you know was probably one of Europe's the strongest social movements in Europe in the last twenty years. But I guess maybe to begin with, in terms of an overview of housing housing in um, in Spain, where where it's at, etc. I think there there are sort of two ways. I was having a, a discussion on, on an Irish podcast recently about about housing in Spain with um, Professor Joe Haslam, who's a Madrid-based uh, professor. And I realized at a certain point we were just we were sort of talking cross purposes. He was talking, and I think just sort of two perspectives on housing. What he was talking more something which I think a lot of people, particularly from the English speaking world, find attractive maybe about Southern Europe is the sort of, you know, the model of sort of urban, urban living in Spain, where you, you know, you're living, mm-hmm. you're not living in these sort of, you know, suburbs with malls, et cetera. You're living in the city center with, with shops, with bars, et cetera, in your neighborhoods, the cities, you know, the public city square is a, you know, is, is a key, is a key sort of focal point in, in, in that sort of model of urban living. But at the mm-hmm. same time, obviously, Spain, Spain, as we were saying just beforehand, Spain and my own country, Ireland, they were sort of at the forefront of the 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 housing bubble before 2008 and then the housing crisis and a form of sort of financialization, first of the of the of the mortgage market. And now we've seen it spread to other areas such as the rental market. So I was wondering, maybe can you talk about those two, two aspects? You know, maybe the one aspect which which does seem maybe positive for particularly a lot of English speakers. You know, you live in Barcelona. I live in pretty much in the center center of Madrid. Um, it's quite distinct from either from you know my home city of Dublin. I think you're you're from Texas, if I'm not right, wrong, Carlos. Um, or you're 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 brought up in Texas yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm and from so the, Houston. <laughs> oh, Houston, exactly. So yeah. in terms of the lived experience, it's quite different. At the same time, we can see new, I guess, new tendencies, new trends. You know the of of new neighborhoods in Spanish cities, which are becoming much more suburban. You know, there's that great book that was out a couple of years ago, um, La España. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, maybe can you talk about those two aspects? Sure. So I think the Spanish housing model, there's a there's quite a few traits of the Spanish housing model that that are distinctive. So the first one that people here often are not particularly aware of is the, the the large proportion of households that live in dwellings that are in buildings with more than 10 dwellings. That's okay. just very, yes. very, very large, compact, shared uh, housing blocks, right? Um, obviously, these exist in other cities um, throughout Europe and throughout the world. Uh, but in at least in a European context, that you don't have other countries where it's such a dominant form of housing. I think in, it reaches up to like 40% of, of households in Spain. So this is a very strong sort of, you know, degree of lived density. Um, and, in, and in fact, this indicator of lived density is, I think, particularly relevant in Spain. So when you talk about population density, Spain doesn't really stand out in Europe, right? Okay, yeah, of course. But if you talk about what's called inhabited or lived density, that is the, sp- the number of people per square populated kilometer 
Spain is by far uh, above the rest of uh, the rest of Europe. So, um, so this tells you something both about how housing has worked. It tells you a lot about uh, the legacy of rural to urban migration, particularly in the second half of the 20th century. And it tells you a lot about sort of the style of urbanism that has been characteristic uh, of Spanish cities in, in recent years, you know, and um, and even historically with the plaza and the central sort of um, the central sort of, you know, the, the, originally it was a church. Right. But, you know, the central yeah, administrative. Exactly. Building, yeah, exactly. Um, with the, the city, cetera, cetera. city hall. The, yeah. The, the main. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. So that was that's a big part of it. And then the other part of this story for Spain um, kind of historically is the very, very high role of home ownership as uh, as a, you know, as the dominant form of, of housing tenure um, at the peak of the housing bubble in 2006, 84 uh, percent of Spanish households were owner occupied. Um, and this is a really high percentage. Now, this is typical of so-called familistic or Mediterranean wealth, welfare regimes, so the countries of Southern Europe. It's typical for there to be a high degree of home ownership because, okay. because it's a style of welfare state that externalizes a lot of social protection onto families. And so mm -hmm. uh, the intergenerational transmission of housing becomes like a very important way of sort of trying to guarantee asset equality, right? Or Or any kind of social buffer yeah um you'll hear a, a lot in spain about housing acting as people's pensions right so so this was like a big deal and 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 during the sort of build up to the great you know the global financial crisis uh of 2008 uh and then the great recession um this was largely the result of you know very shoddy mortgage lending yeah. Uh, at 100% or above yeah. loan to value. So that means that they weren't taking down payments, right? Um, weren't requiring that. Even most importantly, perhaps, I think, for from the perspective of social vulnerability and so on, is what they did with, with immigrant homeowners, which is this thing called yeah. cross cosigns, okay. uh, whereby when you, when you as an immigrant, let's say an Ecuadorian immigrant, would sign up for a mortgage, you know, you needed someone to co-sign on it for you, particularly if you were putting no money down. Um, and since, you know, you're an immigrant, you don't have the super strong, like, or, or even you don't have a st strong social network or much of a social network at all. Yeah. What banks had people do, you know, the Adio.es re reported on this, is uh, they would just have immigrants co-sign on each other's uh, mortgages without knowing each other. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so that, you know, they would take on the risk in this way. And so lo and behold, when the shit hit the fan uh, in 2008, um, immigrants were the hardest hit, uh, specific, specifically in the sphere of employment, but then also in the sphere of, of highly securitized, you know, subprime mortgages, yeah. basically. Um, and so this had a big role. And so what we've seen in the fallout since the global financial crisis, and this this has happened throughout Europe, at least, is more restrictive lending practices on the part of banks, which is not necessarily a bad thing. That is to say, I, I think it's a very good thing. They started to lend at 80% loan to value mm -hmm. so that you had to put 20% down, um, which is a considerable barrier to home ownership. So what does that mean? It's What that means is that over time, houses that before would have access, or ho households, excuse me, that have would have accessed home ownership 
have had to resort more and more to the rental market. And what we've seen since then is a decline from about 84% to roughly 76% or so home ownership, uh, which is an 8% drop. But considering that, you know, market rate tenants in 2008, I think were something like, you know, eight or 9% of households that basically doubled the share of, of the private rental market in Spain's housing regime while having a very residual presence of social housing or, or um, which only made up about one point, just less than 2% of all Spanish households. So all of the sort of pressure to uh, distribute housing uh, among, you know, middle class and working class families went to the private rental market. And what you got got was, you know, a lot of demand, not a lot of supply. Um, despite how much housing Spain built, but yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of that was second residences in yeah. areas that yeah, are not yeah. particularly populated. And so, yeah, we what we really have in terms of a housing crisis in Spain, it's largely concentrated in the private rental market. That's where the bulk of the story is at. Um, and what we have is, for instance, um, excessive housing cost burdens. Yeah. Uh, that the rate of excessive housing cost burdens is about 40 over has been over 40 percent for tenants in spain for the last 10 years and just so you have some perspective for europe over the last 10 years that declined from 26 to 21 percent in spain it stayed constant it's even risen in recent years i think la hydra put out a study recently that said something like 50 percent of tenants now are below the poverty line after accounting for mortgage uh, wow. uh, for rental payments. So this yeah. has been one of the major transformations in the Spanish housing regime. The other important uh, trend that we point out in the Future Policy Lab report is as this is happening, as we have a larger and larger share of people who have no housing property, uh, we have a larger and larger share of people who have multiple housing properties. Uh, the share of when you exclude people that are living in free housing because they inherited a house, uh, but the share of households that are receiving income from rental payments uh, rose from 2.5% in 2008 to about 7% in, in 2020. And that's actually a pretty substantial increase. It's almost tripling the, the rate that they were at before. So, so there's clear evidence of, of what I've been referring to as property polarization in the Spanish housing market. Okay. And obviously there's a generational element here because I think, you know, you said it's, I think it, yeah, the home ownership has declined by 8% since 2007, but I think for people under 35, it's declined by 50%. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So you have, you have, I mean, as, as you have in many other European countries, a sort of an emergence of a generation rent, so-called, uh, which is yeah. having a huge impact. Obviously Spain, Spain's birth birth rates were were low already, but it's, I guess the social impact of this is that you have, you now have people who can't, you know, who in a sense can afford a sort of stable, a stable home life in which, in which it's possible to have children, whether that's via some, some sort of reasonable rent regime or social housing or whatever that, you know, in, in Spain, you have this thing where yeah, 2% of the housing stock is social housing, which is, you know, is is nothing, you know, it's, it's, um, I think it was yeah, it, yeah. in in the Netherlands, it's, it's, maybe up up at thirty percent or something, which is, you know, a sort of. Um, yep. But in terms of in terms, the European average is about ten percent. So okay, yeah, it's about ten percent. Sorry, the, 
the European average is 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 just like yeah, nine ten percent. Okay, is just nowhere near where Spain's at right now. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, obviously, one of one of the big policy announcements in that respect has been again in the run up to these local local and regional elections. Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez has has made a series of announcements around social housing. For example, particularly interesting has been his decision to use housing stock that's still within the bad bank um, Sareb. Which, which, which was the sort of state, state-backed bad bank, which bought up, bought non-functioning toxic assets, to- toxic assets uh, post two thousand eight. Yeah. The issue there seems to be that most of most of the most of the of the prime housing stock has long has been sold. No, I mean I think yeah, even yeah, like, yeah. like basically last year they sold nine thousand um, housing units, primarily in Madrid and Barcelona. And I guess I was wondering if you could talk. Well, first, firstly, about the change, the the changes in in the in particularly about the rental regime, because you know what we what we've seen is like a whole a whole series of new speculative practices emerge. You know, like the you you've had corporate, for example, corporate landlords such as landlords. Blackstone, Black, yeah, Black uh, Blackstone emerging. Blackstone, I think, has twenty thousand housing units, whereas I presume before before two thousand eight, they you know these type of of multinational landlords. You know, just didn't have a presence in Spanish cities, and so mm. what we've, what we have are, are certain policy announcements around social housing, but the trend since two thousand eight has has been the opposite. Really, it's been you've had like local and you know in Madrid the the regional and local authorities sold off a lot of their their social housing stock post two thousand eight. Yeah, and you have new practices around obviously Airbnb around particularly short term short term rentals. And so it's it's not even that it's not even that eight you know you have this this larger rental market. It's that that rental market is now being sort of radicalized via new speculative practices such as short term rentals. Sure. So you know, before I answer, I should say that there are a number of researchers who are so much more knowledgeable than me about a lot of these things, and I would uh, I would sort of uh, I, I would I would ask the, the the listeners to to check out some of their work because it's absolutely excellent. Melissa Garcia Lamarca uh, has a book out called non-performing loans non-performing people that's I think um really one of the best out there um uh Sophie Gonick has yeah. uh an outstanding an outstanding book uh dispossession and dissent um, yes that's incredible about the sort of the, the migrant organizing around yeah. the housing crisis. Uh, I'd also recommend particularly on the work of Rhee, it's the work of Jordi Guzman um, and uh, also the work of Javier Gil, Jaime Palomera uh, and uh, Lorenzo Vidal uh, amongst many, many others who are just doing incredible work on the housing situation in Spain. Um, and it's a shame that they're not getting a lot more attention in the national press um, but I'm very much indebted to their work uh, with anything I can say about these topics. Uh, but beyond that, I think, um, or in addition to that, or that aside, let's say, um, what we've seen in Spain, you know, really is a long tail problem. So if we, if we, you know, could zoom out of like sort of the immediate buildup to the crisis and the immediate fallout, um, in the Future Policy Lab report, we talk about this. What has happened with the Spanish approach to public or subsidized housing since the Franco regime, which was largely focused on ownership. There was a famous 
phrase by Arese, the you know housing minister uh, under Franco's dictatorship, who said uh, he wanted a country of proprietarios, no de proletarios, right? Um, he wanted to encourage uh, home ownership precisely because for the regime, they viewed rental housing as a threat to public order. And that was the big shift is that they turned it yeah. into a topic of public order and home ownership became a domesticating um, yeah. approach to housing. So when they put a bunch of public money into uh, protected housing or Vivienda de Protección Oficial, it was through the form of ownership. Um, you, you became the owner of your subsidized home and, and you could flip it on the market after like 10 years. So people benefited substantially from this. And, and the result is um, that in 2023, if the housing that was built with public funds had stayed public to this day, we would have a conservative estimate is a close to 4 million uh, social housing units. Wow. Um, or public housing units, which is well beyond what we have at the moment, which is just a couple hundred thousand. Um, and this is, I think, the real story behind um, a lot of what we're seeing in terms of the crisis, the long crisis of housing affordability in Spain, is just the complete lack of tools at the hands, uh, at the disposal of the public sector to guarantee the right to housing and depending entirely on private actors to distribute uh, housing among mm, less well-off, uh, uh, you know, people in households. And so in this situation, of course, in the sort of frenzy, <laughs> you know, or liquidation sale, basically, that was yeah. the Spanish housing market after the crash. Yeah, Blackstone and a bunch of corporate landlords swooped up a bunch of properties and now we have to try to figure out all these ways to to put those on the market um, through incentives, um, and this is this is becoming well, this has become quite problematic because these are very very powerful actors. A lot of folks, myself included, um, have pointed out sort of, you know, you have corporate landlords on one end, one end, but then you also have these small petty landlords, um, yeah. and you know. I don't want to let the petty landlords off the hook for what corporate landlords can do uh, because for the tenant, you kind of don't care who's your landlord. What yeah. matters is how much you're paying for rent and how, um, you know, how fulfilled your rights as a tenant are, um, which mom and pop landlords you know, just like mom and pop businesses are some of the <laughs> biggest violators of labor rights and uh, housing rights that you're going to you're gonna, ever going to see. Right. So. Um, so I think this is something worth mentioning. It's like, yes, corporate landlords are an easy target, but we need to think about these, these smaller landlords because the smaller landlords, actually, it's true that they are sort of closer to the tenants. If you really think about how much they're making, which is not that much, frankly, <laughs> Um if you actually did the math on what their net profit was off of a rental property, particularly if they have a mortgage, it's really, you know, it's pretty hard to live off of just rent in Spain. I, am, um, I no, I I imagine, but obviously, as a tenant, you're paying off their mortgage. I mean, it's you're for you that's know, it's the a point. That's exactly, the point. it's a it's a nice asset for them yeah. when they retire or whatever. Yeah, it's not not necessarily yeah, yeah, that yeah. they're so living point, off this, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, the only reason I say it is because it's like. 
what we show in this report too is like well you know using this kind of dynamic like a lot of the times um pesoe or other political actors will be like oh what about the vulnerable yeah. you yeah. know uh pensioner who only has this to supplement exactly. their pension well if we did an analysis of what the income okay of households that are in that are receiving rental payments make when you eliminate what they make off of rent and it's like 60 70 percent what okay what yeah. the average are making or what what uh what tenant households make uh so you know 60% greater i mean not 60% of right so there, there's not a lot of vulnerable landlords in Spain. yeah okay okay, okay exactly um, yes the, the the fact of the matter is like you know i i just make like this little like uh tiny little you know well actually type of point when when housing rights activists will say like oh they're living off of our rents and i'll say no 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 they're not living off of them they're not making that much that's actually the really like sad part is they already made a lot they're just kind of using this to sort of supplement their already much higher income okay so it's actually yeah more okay <laughs> you know? no it's true i mean I, I guess the emphasis i would put on on corporate landlords in part is i guess they're revolutionary their ability to radicalize the, the housing market with new practices. Sure. And I think, and this maybe brings, yeah. brings us on to the new housing law. And I think this, um, this is like the first, the first major, major housing law that tries to guarantee the right to housing, you know, since Spain's return to democracy, it's been mm -hmm. th three or four years in the making. I think it was promised in the first year of the current coalition government, particularly around rent controls and, I think you have to you have to acknowledge the the sort of tireless work of Ioni Balara, the Podemos leader, you know, against cons, constant constant blocking by you know the party the Socialist Party uh, minister housing minister around this issue. I mean, even going back to the nego uh, the coalition negotiations, I think Pedro Sanchez said in in two thousand nineteen that the reason he couldn't go into coalition with with Podemos initially was that they were in favor of forms of market interventionism and the example he gave was rental controls that was that yeah. was i think august 2019 before there was repeat elections you then had a a, a three-year period in which to get their the coalition's first budget passed they did the socialist party signed a guarantee that a housing legislation would be brought brought to the parliament within six months three years later it arrives and i think that's that's been you you know we've seen an unwillingness, I guess, on when, uh, yeah, on the behalf of, of the Socialist Party to introduce serious rental controls and serious yeah. housing regulations. But I think slowly over three years, they have improved the law. They've had they've had to get the votes of of uh, the Catalan nationalists and Bildu and the Basque Country. Um, how do you how do you how do you rate the law? I mean, there's there's various aspects. It's quite complicated. I mean, there's there are a lot of positives in there but do you do you see the particularly the rental controls as being comprehensive enough yeah so i think there's a lot to say about the housing law great um the the short the short answer to the question about rent control is i am happy to see that rent control is in it for, for a few reasons because the the main issue is that rent control in theory is always in the hands of it's a competence of the autonomous communities yeah but when the catalan government tried to instill it the right took it to the constitutional court and the constitutional court 
well, even Soy, I think, was involved in it. But they, they, they took it to the Constitutional Court, and the Constitutional Court ruled that, um, you know, they struck it down. Yeah. Because they said, you know, yes, rent control is a competency of the of the autonomous communities, but rent contracts in particular are a part of the civil code and they're regulated through that because of its nature as private property, which is in the state's uh, jurisdiction, and therefore it couldn't be implemented and they struck it down. And this is a very tendentious reading, I think, of, of how this works. But what the law sort of does is kind of clarify what Article 47, which is the right to housing in Spain, what it actually entails. It makes the sort of distribution of competencies a little bit clearer. Um, it, it makes, you know, it, it basically provides that tool in the areas that the autonomous communities would declare tents, quote unquote. Um, and I think the mechanism for declaring rent control is reasonable. And so far as it's like geographically determined, it's applicable to entire geographic spheres. So yeah. it's not like just particular types of landlords and so on, which was an original version of it. Um, and so I think that's a really good thing. Thing. The problem is that, um, and we can get into this in a bit more detail, but the, the problem is that it lets temporary or short-term rentals mm. off the hook from rent control. And I think that's a huge problem, and we're already seeing some of the effects of that in the in the, in the the rental market. Okay, yeah, mm. well, I, I guess in that sense, I mean, the housing law, like, I guess a lot of governmental policy can be seen as maybe a partial victory, a, a step, a step forward. But that there are there are things that need to be improved. I mean, I guess there are. I mean, there are there are some interesting measures in there. There's a tax on empty empty properties. I think you know you can levy 150 percent on top of the uh, the existing property tax for for properties which have been uh, empty for up to or over two years. New eviction protections and I guess the 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 thing which I think anyone who's rented in Spain will welcome is is the fact that now the the landlord has to assume the cost for um administrative costs for new contracts i mean I, yeah. I don't know about you but i i i've spent probably thousands on you know on on administrative costs when you sign a new contract oh yeah move. so i think there are there are interesting measures in there i guess yeah it's yeah. a question of how how comprehensive they are yeah it's an issue it's not just how comprehensive they are it's it's it really does sort of reaffirm the idea that there is a social right to housing in Spain, which mm. is really, really important because yeah. so much of the Spanish economic model depends on housing as a commodity, basically. Yes. In that sense, personally, I was um, somewhat relieved when Abalos was re relieved of his duties uh, and yeah. replaced by Raquel Sanchez, who um, was has in the had in the past uh, supported rent control as okay. a as a policy so i thought that was a kind of an, an interesting wink um and it should be said actually that the approval of this housing law there's a lot about it that's quite instructive for spaniards today because on the one hand it is the first coalition government since the transition to democracy yes and as you described the sort of birth of this um of this law was quite conflictual yes uh and that's not a bad thing um i think that's there's a degree of democratic maturity there right like 
you're witnessing that this very, very contentious issue uh, does create, um, you know, tensions between members of a coalition government who presumably have similar goals, uh, or at least similar, you know, uh, yeah, similar ideological sim orientation. similar ideological orientations yeah. or similar values or something like that, right? That they they place a similar emphasis on the right to housing, yes, as as a, as a primary use of okay. for living okay. as a commodity. But um, at the same time, there is something, there is a tension that's inherent to the way housing is treated under capitalism, which is as both a basic right and a commodity because of the institution of private property. And, you know, you can't have this one basic human need depend so heavily on the market for its distribution and of course there's going to be tension about that yeah. um it's disheartening to some extent that there's tension about it amongst left-wing parties but but the fact of the matter is that there is because one's more centrist and centrist in a country where until not too long ago 85 percent of people owned their home so this this is very this has a very strong ideological effect in that you know it creates economic attachments uh it creates a whole culture of private property yeah and i think this is you know this is all made quite visible in this in this process um at the same time i think also that it was quite astute of the actors who got this through just from a political yeah. you know perspective What's incredible is that the, the the headlines when this was passed were not, you know, the coalition government gets a housing law through. It's basically that PSOE got Esquerra Republicana and Bildu on board with its housing law. And they completely just ghosted Unidas Podemos, who yeah. are literally like the party that has been fighting the most for the demands of the housing movements in those negotiations over the last two, three years. So it's kind of, it's kind of been brilliant on the part of Pedro Sanchez to not just like reframe the entire debate uh, around social issues going into uh, some regional and local elections where they're not, you know, it's, it's not looking so good for them. Yeah. Um, but also to completely ghost uh, his main well, obviously, yeah, on the left. Well, I, was, I mean, in, in part, that was him intervening within the struggle in the Spanish left. No, in the sense, there has been a clear, a clear strategy from the socialists, in a sense, to marginalize the two Podemos ministers, um, and be seen to, I don't know, favor, but you know, to you know, have a close relation, working relationship with Yolanda Diaz, and who's who's launching her own Sumar platform while. The two Podemos ministers, in this case, the social affairs minister Yone Balara, who's the Podemos leader, yeah, I mean she, I mean she, she co-authored this law, she co-sponsored it, and she pushed. You know, there would be no um, uh, rental controls without without Podemos pushing for this from you know fr from the coalition negotiations in two thousand nineteen throughout the yeah. last three years, and I think you know it's a, it's a clear a clear attempt to sort of marginalize Podemos in that sense, whatever yeah. you think of Podemos', Podemos own role within the sort of internal struggle. I mean, obviously the other, you know, as we're, as you were saying, Carlos, um, it's, it's largely housing is largely a, a regional local uh, power. And in that sense, 
I mean, you, you're living in you're, you're living in Barcelona, and I guess in one sense, you know, particularly from Madrid, from a Pepe ruled Madrid, you look at the sort of policies and uh, around housing, around urbanism. That um, you know, the sort of post Quince MA left led by Ada Calau is has has uh, pushed through. How would you? You know, she she obviously was one of the the leading leading figures in La Paz, the the anti eviction movement, one of the leading figure leading sort of political figureheads of the Quince MA generation. She's been mayor of Barcelona now for eight years. She's up for a third term in next month, and I think it's an interesting moment where, I guess, you know, obviously she was very much along with I guess Pablo Iglesias, the Podemos leader. Yeah, this this figurehead of an of an insurgent movement. She's now been a you know the mayor for eight years, implementing, you know, very interesting policies in urbanism, in around social housing. I think she they have increased the the social housing stock in Barcelona substantially. substantially, which is fantastic. But at the same time, and this goes beyond her powers, obviously you still have the waves of evictions in Barcelona. You have intense, the intense touristification of the city, the pressures yeah. around that. So yeah, how would you how would you sum up her eight eight, eight years uh, as mayor around around the question of housing and and uh, urbanism? So I think I think around housing and urbanism, I think Adakolau has been excellent in terms of what you're going to see from a mayor in a yeah. major Spanish city in 2023. Now. Um, I think there have been quite a few shortcomings in the approach and along the way. But the fact of the matter is that Ada Colau, the, the Barcelona and Camus government has expanded the social housing stock without direct competencies on this, basically using Tanteo y Retracto, which is like preferred purchases to expand the housing stock, which is a okay. very, very interesting, interesting perspective, uh, interesting tool that even... I mean that just that no one that's interested in expanding the the social housing stock is against even liberals, social liberals or whatever that would be in, yeah. uh, in favor of doing this. Um, so I think that's that's an interesting tool that they put into use. Um, she's really limited the presence of tourism in Barcelona um, by just completely cutting it off from the complete deregulation that that Trias um Trias installed uh um, the previous last... right wing right wing mayor pro independent that's correct right-wing well mayor. and the current candidate of exactly yeah exactly nearly 80 yeah. years 80 years old but he's back yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so so you know they, sh- they did manage to sort of like pop off the the tourism aspect but you know even st- even so these are still structural components of what the problems are in Barcelona. So I'd say that like, in terms of holding back the tide, they, Barcelona and Camus has done as much as they can. In terms of reversing it, they ha- I don't think they have. I don't think they've reversed yeah. the tide at all. And I don't know how much they could yeah. um, without provoking a dramatic reaction. But, you know, as tempting as it is from a sort of a radical left perspective to, to view... Barcelona and Camus governments as tepid uh, or, you know, complicit somehow in, um, in speculation and so on. The fact of the matter is that, you know, two days ago, three days ago, we had Nazis running around this town 
yeah uh screaming Adako yeah. is a whore and a squatter and you know running around the rich neighborhood trying to you know stir up trouble and kick out you know anarchist squatters um and even the neighbors in those in that neighborhood that are not particularly supportive of Adakolau responded to that by being like, hey, Nazi punks fuck off, you know? Yeah. Um, I think this is a good example of like the capacity of Barcelona and Camus to sort of instill a certain degree of common sense in Barcelona around housing uh, and to navigate very, very tumultuous waters. Um, because the folks that were saying, you know, Nazi punks fuck off were not, um, in any way left wing and, yeah. or in any way favorable to Colau, but they did not want this. And they made it a point to go to the media and say, look, these squatters have not been a problem in this neighborhood. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's a, that tells us a lot about how much, of the squatter paranoia or the, the panic around squatting, the moral panic around squatting and, um, and all these other dangerous kind of uh, reactionary moments in, in local politics right now, how much of that is constructed in the media, uh, constructed by political actors. I mean, these, these protests in this area did not occur until completely marginal right-wing uh politicians started to organize protests in front of a squat that they didn't know anything about okay in a neighborhood they didn't know anything about uh eva pareda anagrao you know these people um so yeah i think i think that's that's where we're at now is it tepid sure but just look at the forces that you're against and um and look at what what powers they had at their disposal. I, I don't think it's yes, been, exactly been too bad, you know. Um, and and we'll see. And then of course the other thing that they set up really is a model in Barcelona that could later be extended to this housing law. So, for instance, intermediation between uh, property owners and tenants during evictions, for instance. Um, I mean, there have been large numbers of evictions in Barcelona, but if you add up all the ones that they stopped uh, by inter by through their intermediary service, it would be so much higher. Um, okay. It would be it would be on a level that is quite alarming. So um, so yeah, I think you know there's some interesting instruments that that could make some progress towards greater reform at the state level. Um, and, you know, Barcelona is becoming an interesting reference point for housing politics, not so much because of what of the outcomes that it's achieving in the short term, mm. uh, but because of how it's using the tools at its disposal to, you know, to make short term games and lay the groundwork for a long middle and long term strategy. And that that's why places like Austria uh, or Copenhagen are looking at Barcelona and being like, oh, okay, okay, that's not that's that's not bad at all, you know. Where whereas Barcelona is looking at Vienna and saying, like, man, we wish, you know. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I no, I I take your point definitely. I think that is one of the issues 
I guess, for the the, the post Kinsey MA left in Spain is that its engagement in the institutions has you know has 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 yielded state power at various levels and, and to various degrees. But then you you're in a situation maybe where the rhythm, the pace of institutional reform of you know is is particularly slow, particularly when you're in coalition of the junior partner, etc. And there's no doubting. I think Barcelona is the, is the key example, or you can look at the Labour Ministry of Yolanda Diaz or whatever. Is that these are people, you know, pushing the limits maybe of their power of their institutional powers and competencies, but at the same time, when we're faced with a, a series of sort of interlinking crises, the question is: Is it enough in an election year? You know, will it be enough to get Adakalau over the line, and then will it be enough to yeah. get the you know? And I think because there is, I guess, there is a there is a very sort of apathetic air in Spain at the moment around politics and I think yeah. un- unlike 12 years ago when yeah there's you know um progressive forces occupied the city squares it is as you were saying the a lot of the demonstrations we see on the streets nowadays are 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 right wing obviously they you know it wasn't a huge demonstration in Barcelona with the Nazis but it was a bigger anti anti Nazi exactly exactly but yeah. it, they get all the media attention etc. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess yeah that is that is I guess one of the one of my concerns in this election year is I think if they can particularly if the coalition but if, you know Alcalá and Barcelona other places they can get another term you know and sort of sustain you know see these reforms through further but it's a question of have they maintained the i guess a, a, a yeah. necessary level of consent for that well i was i was kind of looking at the some of the twitter chatter today and being uh, as y'all said on y'all's feed a kind of a nostalgic yeah. millennial <laughs> not a millennial just because i'm a i'm probably closer to a zennial as they say what, what what's what's a, what is it how do you, how do you define a zennial it's like between it's a sort of intermediate between, between gen, gen x and between yeah. gen x and zennials yeah. or, or so what's that like what's that like 82? sort of 78, 82. Okay. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm 40 uh, years old. And so, yeah, you know, I, I used a landline and, uh, and all that good stuff. But in any case, the, the thing that I saw was like, I've seen some columns in major newspapers by people that are quite a bit younger than me and were quite young during 15M, to be perfectly honest. In some cases, I was their teacher where they were <laughs> saying things like, um, you know, oh, we have just as much poverty as we did back then. We're we're doing just as poorly and all that. And I'll just, you know, I just made it a point to to spell out, you know, with loving criticism that, you know, the minimum wage in Spain was 640 euros uh, in 20, 2011. Yeah. It's now 1,080 and that ain't inflation. That's a, that's a 60% increase yes. in the, and in, in the medium, in the, in the, the minimum, minimum wage. And Something that a lot of people forget, and something actually that I think 15M itself would forget very often, um, as sort of um, a movement that was somewhat skewed towards the precaritized middle class, mm-hmm. um, is that the bulk of the impact of the crisis was on the bottom income quintile in Spain. That's who rent has gone up the most for. And that's who bore the brunt of austerity and bore the brunt of um, of of unemployment during the last recession. Uh, and that's who you're helping when you increase the minimum wage by four hundred yes, bucks, of course. And uh, when you get at the sort of 
one of the structural constraints to the Spanish labor market, which was temporality. Yeah. And you make indefinite exactly. contracts, the default contract. I mean, these are heavily skewed towards the bottom end of the income distribution. And that's why um, I think it's kind of naive or, or or just not particularly rigorous to say that nothing has changed since then. Um, the problem, and this gets at what you were talking about before, is, is the problem with new politics is that in order to capture that that feeling of indignation that that drove the 15m wave and the post 15m wave they resorted to a lot of hype language a lot of grandstanding a lot of yeah. maximalism yes. and all of this so that by the time you do make institutional reforms if you promised a revolution the gap between the hopes you yeah. captured and the gains you make is massive and leads towards disaffection and nihilism. And in a sense, this is, uh, this is sort of at the root of a lot of the political nihilism I think that we're seeing today. Uh, and I think there's a lot to be learned from that because the jump from a politics of direct action mutual aid solidarity that was characteristic of 15m direct democracy the demand for participation which has practically yeah. disappeared from the yeah. political arena um all of this put the citizenry as a collective uh at the sort of the the forefront of social change in spain um when that shift was made towards representation um a lot of the attention migrated to the sphere of the media, to fights between different currents within Podemos and different personalities and all this. This is very demobilizing because this is the yeah. kind of this is this is everyday politics and it's boring and it's messy and it might be more stable and might be what leads towards incremental change, but it's not um particularly inspiring of enthusiasm, which is what I think uh got a lot of those folks there so what you see is a large drop off in support uh over the years towards abstention or towards uh typical actors or in some cases even more radical actors uh and then you know you see other forces playing the anti-politics game and yeah. being um you know uh somewhat uncontested in that field so I, I really think one of the biggest mistakes was to sort of disengage from the focus on participation and active citizenship and uh, direct action and civil disobedience and to keep that sort of transgressive energy about them. Um, well, it's, yeah, it's an interesting, it, no, it's definitely, it's the most dramatic change, I guess, where we're, I feel we're all, we're all social Democrats now and basically, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's yeah. about useful politics. It's about, um, and there is, you know, that sense I mean, I, I don't know how you, you're probably following the the campaign in Barcelona much closer than I am, but like, yeah. obviously Adekala was, you know, she comes from that. She comes from, you know, obviously the her first elect, election campaign was about promising a new politics, et cetera. Now, obviously mm -hmm. that's very hard to sustain over, you know, the going for her third term, but it, there, there is definitely a notice noticeable absence maybe around that. Now, I, I, I think Barcelona in terms of participation, in terms of, being open to, you know, 
open towards a certain internal pluralism has probably been the most successful out of all the sort of post kinsey local oh, yeah. organizations. You know, they have a much healthier internal culture, but there is there is a notable absence from you know from from her re-election campaign around the idea, yeah, of a new politics, of a new way of yeah. doing politics. Well, I mean, even I would say uh, one of the actors that gets forgotten a lot in the post fifteen M discussion is Coop. Coop, oh yeah, has. Of course, yeah. Uh, I mean, they've had a quite vibrant internal political life, and they have a lot more deliberative mechanisms for deliberation and all this kind of stuff. You can like or not like their politics, oh, yeah. right? You know, um, and and you know they can be very very frustrating. But um, but you know, I think there's stuff to learn from them certainly yeah. in terms yeah. of in terms of how to have a dynamic in in you know inter-organizational or intra-organizational culture that I think other actors such as Paul Amos did not really learn and and that I think would certainly help a lot uh, in the current sort of debate about Sumat and Podemos and all these kinds of things. So um, yeah, I think there's just a lot to be said about how how much the current situation has been influenced by not just what took place during 15N, but what has been forgotten along the way. I mean, I guess one of the interesting social actors that has emerged maybe since then is is the emergence of um, tenant tenant unions and some of the great work they're doing around, uh, you know, organizing, particularly organizing around tenants for corporate landlords and the, and, and the demand for collective bargaining rights. You know, Spain, Spain has a very strong collective bargaining um system in in terms of the labor market and the potential well more you know com- in comparative comparative terms with the uk united states etc yeah, yeah, yeah you know it's a long That's way to go coverage. but yeah exactly yes in that sense yeah can you talk maybe where where do you see the the struggle for the right to housing going going forward we have this new law we have this renewed emphasis at least during this election campaign around you know social housing promising you know thousands of new units where where do you see the struggle going and you know what role do you see the housing movement in that going forward i think the housing movements have to continue to push yeah for the right to housing to be prioritized over the right to private property i mean i think that's to and, and to housing as private property i mean the right to private property is kind of an abstraction that situates housing on the same level as an iPhone. And I think that's a huge mistake, okay. but I think that the, the, the housing movement needs to push until housing is viewed as something equivalent to healthcare as something extremely capital intensive, uh, that generates a lot of debt. If you're going to access it through the market, uh, as we see in the United States with 15,000 euro or $15,000 a month treatments for cancer, even for among the insured, um, so I think we need to tend more and more and more towards hopefully someday free housing, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the really good news about the tenants union is that it's part of a a broader low-key wave. It's the most visible part, once again, because it it, it has a certain class bias that I think it is favorable for it. Um, it's part of a larger wave of social unionism. Uh, which is manifest in the street vendors union in Barcelona uh, and in Madrid, yeah. the sex workers unions, uh, Sindicato Otras, uh, Putas Indignadas in uh, in Barcelona, um, the Kellys. Yeah. Um, right. So these different figures of 
informalized workers organizing to demand their rights, which is actually a lot closer in spirit to the original workers' movement, right? Um, you know, the unions weren't legalized when they first started. <laughs> exactly. Either, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they just used their class power and direct action, mutual aid and solidarity to get to get the goods. And I think the tenants union is a very good example of this. Um, that said, I think a large part of their struggle, and we mentioned this in the Future Policy Lab report, is um, I think it should be oriented around trying to gain formal recognition, formal collective bargaining rights to set up binding uh, collective bargaining frame frameworks for t uh, private rental markets in, or just rental markets in um, in different cities. And I think that would be, you know, a really good horizon for them. And I think that the nice thing about social unionism is that, you know, you always need it. You always need to to do this, and especially under a capitalist system. And or I don't think their action was limited to achieving rent, you know, one demand like rent control or achieving a housing law or what have you. I don't think that's their role. They're not a lobby. I think they're a union. And that's an interesting um, development in the last few years. No, definitely. Um, no, great. Well, look, it's been it's been great talking, Carlos. Um, yeah, man. Yeah. A really interesting conversation. Yeah, loved it. Always Thanks. a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Cheers.